Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I realize many of you out here who listen to this podcast regularly live in other states or you can never attend North Shore Vineyard because you work a job on the weekends, but you get a lot out of this podcast, find it very helpful. You might consider supporting us. Visit northshorevineyard.org and click donate. Get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, anything you can give could really help us continue to do what we do. We really appreciate it. Today's talk is called Moving Towards Jesus Together. This is looking at one of our foundational ways of how we understand how we do church at North Shore Vineyard. We're going to be talking about something called Centered Set Ministry. So let's go to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. of October looking at our vision, our values, uh, what we're trying to do as North Shore Vineyard. A lot of people come here to this church and they go, this church is so laid back and easy going. But understand, as laid back as we are, we've put a lot of intentionality into what we do. It takes a lot of intentionality to be as laid back as we are. Uh, and when it comes to, to the way that we practice uh, and live out our faith, we put considerable amount of thought and time into that. And so I want to talk about probably the one of the most central issues to how we approach church here uh, at North Shore Vineyard. And if you're new here, you picked a great time to come along because you might, at the end of this message, go, I'm never coming back to that church again. Or you may say, that's the exact kind of crazy I want to jump up in the middle of. So one of my favorite authors, uh, particularly as a pastor, is uh, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is, is probably most famous for the message translation of the Bible, but he was a pastor for 25 years up in the Baltimore area, and he wrote some amazing things out of that experience of being a pastor, and so probably two of the most helpful books that I've read over the last nine years of being the pastor here at North Shore Vineyard, one was a, a memoir called The Pastor, and another one was a book he wrote many years ago called The Contemplative Pastor, and I want to read you a quote from it. It's actually on your outline. But listen to me anyway. Jesus is the way as well as the truth. The way the gospel is conveyed is as much a part of the kingdom as the truth presented. Why are pastors experts on truth and dropouts on the way? What is Peterson getting at here? Peterson is getting at our tendency, and it's not just in the church. It's in all aspects of life to equate knowledge, intellectual knowledge, with um, transformation. We think information equals transformation, and it doesn't. And I love, I love reading theology and stuff. I mean, over the past few years in ministry, I've read hundreds of books on theology and spirituality, and I love that stuff. I get into it. Uh, it's the kind of books that I put on in the car when we're taking a family vacation and it knocks everybody out, you know, within about five minutes, everybody's asleep, but it keeps me awake. I love that stuff. <laughs> but there is a tendency to focus so much on intellectual knowledge that we divorce it from experiential reality. There's a famous saying of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if you continue in my teachings, 
you're really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Was Jesus talking about intellectual knowledge there? No. If you look at the translation of the term knowledge in, in, the lang- in the original language there, it's talking about experiential knowledge. Jesus is saying, if you actually practice my teachings, you will experience the kind of truth that will bring you freedom. Why is it so often that we think just learning something intellectual will do something in our lives? The Apostle Paul, in the, in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We don't need more puffed up people. <laughs> we need people who are people of substance who help build others up. So today, I want to talk about the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus and what the way of Jesus says to us as individuals and as a community that are trying to live out our faith together. And so to do this, I want to look at one of the most profound and beautiful truths that I've seen in Scripture that has changed my life. But one that I haven't heard a whole lot about in the church. The incarnation of Christ. You know, my first 10 years as a Christian, I was a part of, of, of churches where Every Sunday we would hear something about Jesus, but usually the focus was on the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is important. It's central to the faith. Man, the incarnation, some pretty powerful stuff there. But for most people, when it comes to the incarnation of Christ, the only teachings we ever hear about it is during Advent season. We see Jesus lying in a manger, surrounded by ox and sheep and cattle, Mary and Joseph and shepherds and the Magi with their gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Please silence your cell phones like me. (laughs) My phone has a dumb person. We get to the Christmas season. We focus in on the birth of Christ and all that went on with that. But as soon as Christmas is over, we just kind of get back to doing everything until Easter happens, and then we focus on the Christ. Well, what about all the stuff in between the birth of Christ and the, and the cross and the resurrection? What about all that stuff? Does it mean anything to us? Well, I think it does. In fact, I found the incarnation of Christ to be one of the most transforming things in my spiritual journey. But it started me learning about the incarnation of Christ actually started during a very difficult time in our life. Dean and I, I've shared this on numerous occasions, but our first few years of marriage were pretty dang hard. I mean, it was, I, I hear people talk all the time about how they had just, the first year was just bliss. Our first year, I mean, you know, pretty much a few days into the honeymoon, we're like, man, this is, this is tough. <laughs> this isn't what we thought we signed up for. But by the grace of God, we're still here today. But on top of the, the, the issues that we had navigating our own baggage and our own relationship problems and trying to work out being married, we were also a part of a church at the time that, looking back on it, was a lot more like a cult than a, an actual healthy Christian community. We didn't know any better at the time. It was the only church we'd been a part of. And then on top of that, after coming out of that experience and all the, you know, spiritual trauma that that caused, between the birth of our daughter Tevi and our son Ezra, we had a period of about a year where we had two miscarriages 
in, in, the, in, the time, in, a, in just a year's span. Now, the first miscarriage was bad. But when you have two of those things back to back, what do you think? <laughs> you start going like, is God mad at me? Is, are we being punished? Is there something we've done wrong? And so about a month after that second miscarriage, Dina was just in a very fragile place, and she just wanted to get healed up and get around God. So she decided to go to this retreat center in West Louisiana and spend a few days just praying and being with God, maybe getting some counseling, and, and get healed up from the experience a bit. And so on the first night she was there, she sat down with the lady who ran the ministry, hoping to get some ministry, some compassion, some empathy. And she shared with this lady how she had had two miscarriages over the period of a year. And you know what this lady told her? She says, you were made by God to bring a baby to term. And if that's not happening, there's obviously some sin in your life. God is punishing you for your sin by taking your babies. That night after Dina had that meeting, she called me up, and it was just me and a little baby Tevia hanging out. And she began to tell me what happened, and she was crying on the other end of the phone. She says, is it true? Did God take these babies because of my sin? Is it my fault? I had been angry a couple of times at Christians in my first few years, but I had never felt the intensity of anger that I felt in that moment. It was a good thing that this woman was a few hours away and it was late at night because I don't know what I'd done if she'd have been right in front of me. I could not believe it. Are you kidding me? My wife, who's in a fragile state because she's just lost two babies over the course of a year, and you're going to tell her God took your babies because of your sin? This set me on a bit of a journey with God. I remember going to the Lord and being just so angry. I was like, God, I can't, I, I don't get this. Why is this going on? I'm so angry at this. Why, why are Christians like this? But in the moment of my most intense anger, God did not validate it. <laughs> you know what God did? Holy Spirit says, Let's look at a little highlight reel of your life these past few years and see how you've treated other people. I could share several of these things. I'll only share two of them. It was a long highlight reel. <laughs> God brought to mind how a friend of mine in college was newly married to his wife and they were struggling to pay their bills. And you know what my answer was to him? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be struggling to pay your bills if you tithe to your church more. Dina had a relative we were hanging out with one day, and she began to open up how in a very difficult time in her life she had had an abortion. And my answer to her, even though she, she was obviously didn't, was not proud of that, my answer to her was to, judge her, and heap more guilt and shame upon her? God began showing me one event after another from the previous years of being a Christian, and I realized as much as I was angry at this woman for how she had treated my wife, I had been doing the same dang thing over and over. 
using religion to beat people down, using the Bible as a weapon, not seeking to understand people or show compassion, but judging them, pushing them away. I went from intense anger to just intense sorrow over my own sin. My heart was broken. And in the middle of my brokenness, as I'm crying out to the Lord, going, Lord, I'm so sorry. As I began to feel the weight of my own sin, God said, you know what? But I still love you, and I always have, and I love that lady too. I experienced in the midst of my grief, my anger, the loving mercy of God. And in that moment, I was reminded of a passage which is on the front of your, your bulletin today from Hebrews. A passage I had read on many occasions, but, you know, you can read things in the Bible and you, you kind of get them to one extent, but then you finally get what they're actually saying, and this was one of those moments. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He did not miss the mark. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I had read that passage on numerous occasions, but all of a sudden, I got what it was saying. This Jesus who I'd given my life to at 20 years old knew what I was going through. Back in the 90s, there was a a kind of a cheesy Midler song. You probably heard it before. And and there's this, this one line in it. She says, God is watching us. God is watching us. Y'all want me to sing it? No, I'm not going to. (laughs) God is watching us from a distance. And I am sure there are all kinds of people who've heard that song and it's given them chills and it's made them misty eye, but it's a freaking lie. God is not watching us from a distance. God has plunged himself in the midst of the muck and mire, the joy and the hardship of human existence. And in that moment, I I felt such a sense that there is nothing that I've ever faced in my life that God hasn't already faced as one of us. That's the incarnation, folks. Let me read you a song that I wrote out of that experience. I'll read it to you instead of playing it for you. There are no words of comfort, no reasons that won't sting the soul. No stream to wash away the grief in its flow. When loss and pain are what you're dealt, when your failing strength is all used up, when you have given everything and you want to turn away this cup, he knows the isolation. He knows all the desperate hours. He knows the loneliness, the painful passing, because he's been there before. They'll come at you with answers, rusty swords swung by fools to fill your head with failure and your heart with anger and your path with stones. The bastards never warn you, but they sneak up unaware, and behind their smiles and sincere hearts, they assault your soul and beat you to despair. 
but he knows the accusations. He knows how they never really understood. He knows that sometimes love can take you to the other side of hell and death and hold you full of life and hope. He knew and he forgave them. He knew and he offered up his life. He sees you broken and afraid. He has compassion on your weary soul. He knows. What does it mean that when God wants to rescue the world, God does it through incarnation? What does that reveal about God? I mean, I think if we were in charge of saving the world, we would do it like a Hollywood blockbuster movie. We'd have Jesus show up fully formed like Superman, and he'd fly around, and he'd do all kinds of amazing things. What does it mean that the God who created everything becomes one of us? Doesn't just snap his fingers, but he becomes one of us. You know, you go past that nativity scene, that cute little nativity scene that we celebrate at Christmas all the time and, and gives us all those worm feelings, you realize, you you go on, here's what's happening. Jesus has to get his diapers changed. His golden fleece-like diapers. No, I'm just kidding. I won't quote Ricky Bobby. (laughs) Sweet Lord, baby Jesus. (laughs) He had to get his diapers changed. He had to nurse at his mother's breast. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to share his toys with his cousin John the Baptist when they would have a play date. Jesus went through puberty. His voice changed and other things. He grew up to apprentice in his father's carpentry business. 30 years before Jesus ever preached a message. 30 years of just being an ordinary guy. What the heck does that tell us about God? See, I have a theory about the incarnation. This may be a heretical idea, but you've suffered through a few of my heretical ideas. So I imagine the Trinity hanging out in heaven Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're looking down on the earth at all the wars that people are fighting over religion. At all the ways people, even God's chosen people, are using the scriptures to exclude people and beat each other up. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are going, why are they missing it so much? And they're grieved over this. And Jesus pipes up. Jesus says, hey, Pops. I got an idea. How about you let me go down and show them what we're really like? See, I I think one of the whole points of the incarnation, as Paul would say in the book of, of, of Colossians, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. We're not left... You know, trying to imagine some abstract thing out there, something like the force in Star Wars that, you know, uh, God is just this mysterious thing. Because of Jesus, now we actually have a picture of what God is like as one of us and how God behaves. We got a target to shoot for. 
30 years, Jesus lived as just an ordinary person facing the ordinary realities of life, the good, the bad, the joys, the suffering. What was all of that about? Well, I think it was about the love of God. I want you to think right now, if you're fortunate enough to have one or two people in your life that you can count on through thick and thin, that you could call at 3 o'clock in the morning if you're going through some crisis, the people that would come visit you in the hospital, the ones that would come, come to the funeral of a family member that died for you, think of those people right now. What is it about that love? Well, there's a presence there. There's a connection there. There's a relationship. And I bet you the the people that love you the most, it's not because of your beliefs. Because they love you. The Apostle John said, God is love. God is love. God doesn't just love. God is is love. And whoever loves knows God, for God is love. One of the things the incarnation speaks to me is that God puts a priority on relational connection, on stepping into our world. He wasn't in a hurry to get on with saving the world with a snap of his fingers. He was in a hurry to do the slow work of entering into our world, becoming one of us, as Eugene Peterson put it in the the Message Bible, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, and we beheld His glory, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out. Don't shout me down, people. That's the good news. See, the good news wasn't just something that Jesus preached It's the way he lived. It's the way he lived. We're going to take communion at the end of the service, but we have an open table here at North Shore Vineyard. We say anybody that wants to come take of the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Christ, anybody who is just moving towards God enough to to just come and partake is welcome. doesn't matter where you come from. Why do we do that? Because if you look at the Gospels, who was excluded from Jesus' table? Nobody. (laughs) That's the answer. Nobody. Nobody. At Jesus' table, you know, Jesus got in such trouble for the people he ate with that he was called a drunk and a glutton. He ate with tax collectors, stay-at-home moms, prostitutes, lepers, little kids, stuck-up Pharisees. Anybody was welcome at his table. Jesus didn't just talk about the good news. He demonstrated it. Jesus breaking bread with anybody, that was the good news. This is God with you. This is God with us. Jesus didn't just talk about loving his enemies. He did it. Jesus didn't just talk about forgiveness. With his last dying words on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even understand what they're doing.
I want to. Do we have a slide there? Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk about. So, 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 how do? Enough about this incarnation stuff. What does it mean to us as a church? What does it mean to how we actually live out our faith as a community? Well, I want to show you two two uh, slides. The first is a bounded set. I think most churches in modern America are kind of organized like this: a bounded set. We have a circle up there, and we got people in the circle and people out of the circle. And many churches, this is the way they're organized. The emphasis is on the boundary. And the boundary may be taking a class and signing a statement saying that you agree with their doctrinal statement on how they believe things. Some churches, that boundary might be pretty thick. It might include your, politi- your, your politics. It might include how you dress, how you talk. And if you go to a church that's a bounded set, it's going to feel pretty much like a, a subculture. They're going to have their own language, their own insider jokes. And, and, and you, you know when you're in a bounded set because it feels very foreign to you. Now, a bounded set is not always a bad deal. I think if you're doing a small group and you're trying to work through trauma or, or you know, difficult issues, it's good to have a very thick boundary and not just let everybody in. But I think a more Jesus way to do church is what we call centered set. In a centered set, next slide, you'll notice the the boundary is taken away. We put Jesus in the middle, represented by the cross, and you can see different people, men and women all over the place with little arrows signifying the direction of their life, you know, where where they're headed. So what does this mean? Well, for a centered set understanding of church, what we're trying to do here at North Shore Vineyard is not majoring on being bound together by ideology or doctrine or or our, our stances on politics or social issues, but we're coming together because we are moving towards Christ. The emphasis is not on just getting in a circle. It is, are you moving towards Christ? Are you heading in that direction? What does this look like in the, in the New Testament? Well, if you look at, uh, let's take a Pharisee. Let's say one of these, um, you got a person, I, I, I probably should have drawn this out better. I didn't actually draw this. Let's say you got a person up next to the cross, symbolizing a Pharisee. Many Bible scholars have noted that out of all the religious groups in the, in the first century, Judaism, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, that Jesus was actually closer to the Pharisees than, than any of those other groups, which might be surprising since he's always getting tangled up with the Pharisees. But the typical Pharisee that meets Jesus that we see in, in Matthew, for instance, is once they encounter Christ, they begin moving away from Jesus unless they're moving towards him to kill him. But you can contrast that with a Samaritan woman at the well. See, the Pharisees were very close to Jesus in their understanding of Judaism. They were guys. They were ethnically Jewish. So was Jesus, all that stuff. But they're moving away from him. Jesus, on the other hand, when he meets with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, that woman is about as far away from Jesus as you could get in that time and culture. She was from a mixed race that was looked down upon by the Jewish people as as they would call them, dogs. She was a woman. Her her religion was a bastardized form of Judaism. Not only that, 
She'd been married five times, and the guy that she was living with wasn't even her husband. There was a lot of things that put her on the opposite end of the spectrum from Jesus. But after Jesus encounters her by the well in John chapter 4, she begins moving towards Jesus. In fact, she invites the whole village out. (laughs) They have a little mini revival right there in Samaria. Now, under a centered set understanding, the Samaritan woman who is far away from Jesus but moving towards Jesus is much better off than the Pharisee who's right up next to Jesus but moving away. And so, as a church, what Centered Set ministry looks like is we start with ourselves. A few weeks ago, I talked about probably one of the most profound things that Jesus ever said, but one of the, one of the least practiced. Before you set about to take the speck out of other people's eyes, deal with the plank in your eye. <laughs> No, Lord. We start with ourselves. We don't just say, like, hey, I went to a Billy Graham crusade and gave my life to Christ 30 years ago, so I'm in the circle now, and I'm good. I took a church membership class. I'm in good standing. No, we ask ourselves the question, am I moving towards Christ? Phil Johnson, the pastor of the, the vineyard down in New Orleans where I was on staff for seven years as a worship leader, I remember him sharing his story one time, and he was a, a, a member in good standing of a Baptist church for years. He was even a deacon. He was in charge of counting the offerings, the offering team and all that stuff, except there was a problem. He had never trusted his life to Christ. So he was showing up every week. He was in the circle. He was right up in the middle of the circle. Under a bounded set understanding, he had done everything he needed to do. But then one day he actually trusted his life to Jesus and everything changed. So the first aspect of a centered set understanding of spirituality, we don't start with the wrongs of other people. We start with ourselves. What's my issues? It's kind of like that story that I shared uh, at, the, at the beginning of this, I was focused on my anger at what this other person had done to my wife. Well, when I dealt with God, he kind of flipped the script on me. Thank God he did. That's where we can really see that even when God reveals things that hurt, man, it's so good. <laughs> it is so good. It frees us. So we start with a plank in our own eyes. We deal with that first. We don't try to challenge all the things going on around us. We start with our own lives. We take our own journey seriously. But second, when it comes to other people and the way that we relate to other people, we don't put boundaries up. There's enough of that going on in the world today. Have you noticed? I mean, that's the way human beings are. We tend to just want to hang around with people who have the same politics, who are in the same socioeconomic strand of society, who shop at the same Rouse's that we go to and go to the same Starbucks and are into the same things we're into. We tend to do that. And if you don't have some intentional intentionality in your life, you will just surround yourself with everybody who agrees with you on everything. And when it comes to anybody who doesn't agree, you will push them away. You'll create a boundary. But Jesus erases the boundaries over and over again. And what I talked about last week, the Holy Spirit does the same. God behaves badly according to our chopping the world up into distinct groups. God seems to be about erasing the boundaries and reconciling people to himself. So when it comes to the way we deal with other people, 
we don't make it primarily about ideology or religion or doctrine. We make it about a priority on love. Back to the incarnation. If Jesus' whole time here on earth was 33 years, and 30 years of that was just being a regular, ordinary dude for the three years that he did ministry, what's that break down into? It's, it's roughly a 90 to 10 ratio. What if we were to put 90% of our time into just relating with people, being in relationship and loving people right where they're at for the 10% that we share our beliefs? Oh, shut up now. See, I think in the church in America, we've got it the exact opposite. We spend 90% of our time railing against all other people for what they're doing and what they're into and who's in and who's out for the 10% that we spend with them. I heard a joke one time. I won't mention the denomination. It was about a specific denomination, but what do you... (laughs) What do you do to get a person from this particular denomination to leave you alone? Will you go up and pray the prayer at the church and become a member? And they'll never mess with you again. (laughs) And unfortunately, that is the experience a lot of people have in church. As soon as the church gets you in the boundary, gets you to pray the prayer, gets you to sign the doctrinal statement and become a member, they're never going to bother you again. (laughs) Because it was just about convincing you to believe something. And so in our relationships with others, as a community, when we relate to people out here, you know, I I play a lot of music outside the church. And I don't I don't come in, you know, saying I'm Pastor Crispin Schroeder. Most people don't realize (laughs) in the vineyard, if I get called a pastor, it's usually because somebody's ribbing me or something, you know. (laughs) Or they haven't been here long. (laughs) I don't I don't lead off with I'm I'm a I'm in ministry full time. What do you think about that? What do you think about Jesus? Whether I'm playing in a bar or a festival or playing with with people that aren't Christians, I play with other bands. What I I don't go into any of that pushing my agenda. I go in to serve. When I'm playing in a bar, I try to tip the bartenders and the waitresses. I try to treat people with respect. I try to show up and do the best that I can because I feel like I'm representing Christ. And if, I, if after I do that over time, there are people who want to know what I believe because they've seen something different in my life, well, then maybe I have something to say. But taking that approach, you know, if you really take the Jesus stuff seriously about dealing with the plank in your own eye before you try to change other people, Guess what? It, it, it starts to deal with the hypocrisy a little bit. <laughs> Isn't that the biggest excuse that people have for not being a part of the church? Man, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They talk good talk, but they don't really live it out. So what we're trying to do here at North Shore Vineyard is do something that is not bound together by ideology. I love that in this church about half the people here are liberal, half the people are conservative. I love that we got rich people, poor people. We got folks all across the spectrum of belief. And we are united, not by any of that, but by moving towards Christ. And that's what we're going to be about. And anybody can come play this with us. Anybody can jump into the game with us. Don't matter where you are in life. If you're serious about moving towards Christ, hey, we're, let us help you do that together. So today... 
I'll close with this statement of Jesus. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the little fish on the back of your car. They will know that you are my disciples by your extravagant houses and and your beautiful cars. They will know you are my disciples by your stances on all the social issues of today. Jesus didn't say any of that. He said they will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. They will know that you are my followers by the ways that you guys love one another. If people... Look at your life. Is it, does it lead them to believe that you're a follower of Jesus or not? I'm not saying this in a condemning way. I, don't, I hope people think that about me. I don't know. But that's what we're shooting for, that we could be a community that is identified by the way that we love one another and by the way we care for downtown Covington and the people in it. Now, if you want something that gets into a whole lot of other stuff, this probably ain't going to be the church for you. <laughs> But we're going to major on that, loving God and loving people, loving people with the same boundless, boundaryless love that God has shown to each of us because that's the stuff that changed the world, folks. That is the stuff that if you let it into your heart, it will change you. How can you know if you're moving towards Jesus? Look at your life. Look at the trajectory of your life. I was talking to Dina yesterday on the back porch, and we were talking about how many times, how many times over the years that Christ has rescued us. Like we were heading into some crazy stuff, whether it's with church or whether it was our finances or whether health stuff. How many times the same Jesus that I gave my life to at age 20 has come through for us and how we've heard his voice. And that voice has led us into truth. That's what we want to be about here at North Shore Vineyard. And you're welcome to join us. This is, I'm not trying to do a sell pitch. I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at that. We're going <laughs> to close this morning by taking communion together. And as I said earlier, wherever you're at on the spectrum, <laughs> if you have some movement towards God in your life, you are welcome to partake of this. And here's the way we do it at North Shore Vineyard. If you're new here, you'll come up and we take the, the, the bread representing the body of Christ broken for us that we could be made whole. And we dip that in the cup representing the new covenant. We have new life in Christ. And as you do that, somebody's going to look you in your eye and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. We do this together. It's not a solo endeavor. We do it because we are the body of Christ in a sense, as Paul says. Somebody will look you in the eye and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. So I invite you this morning to come up front. And we got some communion servers around here. Oh, we got some right here. So I'll just close this with a little song while uh, these folks come up here. And we will um, take communion together. Actually, we won't take it together. We'll take it one at a time. But, uh, yeah, feel free to come up as I start. <laughs>